0: From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson.
1: Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of July 5th, 2021. I hope you had a wonderful 4th of July weekend. The White Sox did not, as they dropped two out of three in Detroit, We've mentioned this point on the previous podcast during Sox Machine Live that the Detroit Tigers are playing above 500 balls since May 1st, and this would be a tougher series for the White Sox, but neither Dallas Keuchel nor Lucas Giolito pitched well in this series, and they dug the offense too big of a hole to climb out of. At least Jake Berger had a good debut series. Jose Abreu had a good series too, and hopefully that's a sign that he'll heat up. Probably the best news for the White Sox is that the Houston Astros swept Cleveland. So the White Sox don't lose any ground, or I should say lose any of their lead. They are still six games up in the American League Central. They are 49-34 and for the season and head to Minneapolis for a three-game series against the Minnesota Twins. There's not much to preview as the Minnesota Twins and the White Sox played last week. So in this episode, we'll answer all of your PO Sox questions we got regarding the job Torn the has been doing recently and considering the White Sox future in deciding to make trades or not before the deadline. We start this week's podcast taking a look at next week's Major League Baseball draft after an exciting College World Series that saw Mississippi State overcome Kumar Rocker and Vanderbilt to win their first national championship. We are in a dead period for the prospects, but not for the Major League Baseball teams as scouting departments continue to watch film, interview, and most importantly, negotiate bonuses with advisors to line up their 20-round draft board. The Chicago White Sox have the 22nd-round pick and and have been attached to Indiana prep shortstop Colson Montgomery. But will Montgomery be available for the White Sox after his draft combine? And who could be other first-round targets for the White Sox? And how about the White Sox farm system continue to turn out hitters this year? Will join us to try to answer those questions and more as one of our best friends of the show. From MOB.com, it's senior writer Jim Callis. And hello, Jim. Thanks for joining the Sox Machine podcast again.
2: I'm glad to be here, Josh. Always enjoy this.
1: So before we get into the draft talk, I have to ask about your thoughts and what we are seeing in Chicago this past week. Uh, starting with the feel good story, Jake Berger. He made it to the majors, Jim, after those two devastating Achilles injuries. I'm not sure how long he'll stay with the White Sox in 2021, as he's filling in for Yoan Makata this week. Uh, but he's also been been, been performing well in Triple A, uh, skipping Double A. Uh, how are you viewing Berger's prospect stock with how well he's performed in 2021?
2: Yeah, you know it's funny we've talked about Jake Berger forever, it seems, Josh. And, and as you know, and anybody who listens to this podcast knows, I, I love the Missouri State program. That, that might be. I, my my favorite like non mid major program or even my maybe even my favorite college program besides my alma mater at Georgia I just have a lot of respect for how they crank out players and guys get better and I was a big, I was a big Jake Berger fan I thought he was a little underrated as an athlete when they got him and I'll admit the last you go through these Achilles injuries and I kept him in kind of in the middle of my White Sox top thirty even when it was a deep system and i was like even second guessing ah like this might be a little ridiculous the guy hasn't played in 3 years and like who knows what it's going what it's going to look like but i'm just happy for him i mean you know he he made his pro debut and then he you know basically couldn't play for 3 years unless we count the car shield collegiate league um was the only real game action he saw and then they jumped him to triple a which was kind of cool you know aggressive but cool and he responded and you know, I mean, he probably needs to tighten the strike zone a little bit. I mean, even at, at Charlotte, he was striking out about four times as much as he walked. But, I mean, the power's real. He he looks healthy. I, I think he's moving well. I'm not completely convinced that he's really going to be able to play much second base. But, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, with the shifting and the positioning um, – you know, like, I've always advocated, as you know, Josh, for him being underrated as an athlete. Um, I don't know if, if even I believe he's really a second baseman, but hey, I, I would have said the same thing about Max Muncy, to be honest with you. So, um, I, I just think it's pretty cool. And, you know, and the, the other cool part about it is, I mean, obviously, this isn't like a bad team and they have a hole and they're calling the guy up. I mean, this is a team that's World Series or bust and it, it it's pretty cool. So I'm, I'm really excited for him. I'm really excited for the, the White Sox, because I mean they've been waiting four years to get him back on the field um and, and this is pretty cool i the triple i mean I don't know about you Josh, but i mean. I would have felt greedy if you said, "Okay, Jim, you know how's he going to do in the first 40 games of Triple A?" And if I'd said, "Oh, I think he's going to hit 320 with 10 home runs," that would have been a little bit much to ask, you know. But mm-hmm. but he went out and did it, and and good for him. I, I'm really happy for him in the White Sox.
1: Yeah, collecting two hits in his first game, a very unorthodox double that Daz Cameron lost in the lights. Um, but his and second it hit it counts. That second hit, though, was legit as far as going to right field on the slider, which is a, a swing he's going to have to get used to because I think that's how right-handed pitchers are going to attack him and strike him out is those sliders off the outside corner that we saw Jimenez, Robert, Andrew Vaughn, even Jose Abreu at times struggle with that pitch. So good start for Jake Berger. Also having a good start. Gavin Sheets, his swing looks a lot different than what I saw him in person, Winston-Salem in Birmingham. He spoke about it watching film of Nelson Cruz and working with Jim Tomey in the backfields in spring training. The White Sox are desperate, Jim, for more power from the left-hand side. And it's not even been 10 games. But do you think that there's a hint of a possibility Sheets could fulfill that role for the White Sox? Again, searching for more left-handed power.
2: Yeah, I'll give you – I'll say hint of a possibility. Um, I'd like to see more of it. I mean, that, that said, I'll give Gavin Sheets a lot of credit, too. Like, you know, the way his career started, I mean, he, he wasn't hit for much power at all his first two years in, in the system. And then he kind of tapped into some of it the second half of 2019, and you weren't sure really what it what that meant. Um you know, he slugged 472 at Charlotte, which wasn't even that great because the ball flies at Charlotte. But I'll give him a lot of credit. Like, I'm still not sure if I think he's more than a, a platoon player, really, in the long run. But you know what? He's he's made swing changes. He, You know, I think it was kind of a slap in the face to him uh, when he didn't get invited to the alternate site last summer. He got in better shape. Again, like with Jake Berger's second base, I'm not <laughs> prepared to say that Gavin Sheets can play the outfield on a regular basis. But you know he's gotten some outfield exposure and, and, he, and he's moving better and it's, I, I give him I, I give him a lot of credit, Josh. I, I think there were some obvious areas he needed to work on in his game and he went out and did that. And, and again. Great for him. I mean, yeah. Uh, I mean, he keeps us up. What he'll, you know, homer every other game. That'll work. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, and then you know, and I felt too. You know, I mean, I mean, look. He gets he's blocked by Abreu. They go out and sign some, some more. You know, free agents and you know who are going to clog up. You know, not clog up the lineup, but like take up spots and push guys to DH. And they've got Andrew Vaughn in the system. And it's kind of hard to necessarily figure out a way he's going to get long term regular at bats. But but yeah, for right now, I mean, he's he's a nice left handed bat off the bench. And you know, if he can play the outfield a little bit and, and play some first base. There's a little versatility there. I mean, you know, that could, that could be a pretty interesting guy.
1: Yeah. The caution with fast starts is that even in this season, you're a Mercedes getting option. We've seen guys start hot uh, and then they hit a wall. Uh, but right now it is good to see Jake Berger and Gavin sheets making a very nice first impression with the white socks. Uh, the futures game is back. It'll be taking place during the all-star break. I've only seen snippets of highlights from Yolki uh, but he will be there repping for the White Sox. Visa issues have limited his playing time in the United States in 2021. What are you hoping to see from Cespedes in Denver, Jim?
2: Well, I, I, this is going to sound crazy for me to say. I'm not going to Futures game because it's the same day what? as draft. I, it's the same day as
1: the draft. I can't Why did they game. do that?
2: The game, is, the game is going to end. The oh, game is going to end shortly before the draft starts. So John Simeo oh. will be at Coors Field. I will be in the name of the theater. His name escapes me. Uh, preparing for the draft. So I, I, I will, uh, <laughs> I will hope to be watching TV. I, I just I, I haven't seen that much of him to be honest with you. Same with you. I, I, I'll be honest. I haven't even watched any video of him in pro ball because I've been so busy with the draft. And, and he just started playing. Um and then you know, I and I'd forgotten about this. You know, we were talking about Jake Berger. Jake Berger was supposed to go to the futures game. So right. uh, you know, who knows yeah, I, I don't know how long he's up for, but um perhaps, you know, I don't you know, I don't know if they'll replace him with another White Sock. But yeah, it's I, I normally would be very interested in seeing you because, like as we've talked about, I mean there's some you know, really interesting tools, but there's also some questions on the bat. Um and so I was really looking forward to seeing him up close. Um, but I will, I will not. Like in a, in a perfect world, I, I'd get over there for batting practice. But like I, I, I just don't even know if that's realistic on that day, to be honest with you. But you know, he he got off to a little bit of a slow start, and he and heated up since then. And I mean, he's he's important. You know, as we discussed at the beginning of the season, uh, <clears throat> the the White Sox top thirty list looks a lot different than it did two years ago. So, um, and and you know, you, you could make a case he you know, might be their best prospect right
1: now. All right. So the White Sox are going to add to that farm system with the Major League Baseball draft next Sunday, July 11th is when it starts. You got a chance to watch as far as the draft combined in North Carolina, uh, starting there, because this is new for Major League Baseball. It's not new for like the NFL or the NBA, the NFL. It's a big event in Indianapolis, and now it'll go to other cities and, it's broadcasted all over NFL Network, and we got a chance to watch some of the draft combine on MLB Network. How did you like the event, and do you think it could stick around for Major League Baseball?
2: Yeah, I think it's going to stick around. I think MLB you know, envisions it getting bigger and better. I mean, I think it was very well run. I think the players had a, had a first-class experience. All the players I talked to really enjoyed it. Um, They got to meet with a lot of teams and did interviews. They got a lot of free gear. They got to meet a lot of ex-big leaguers. Um, They were put up in a nice hotel and and fed and and treated very well. So I think that part was very good. Um, You know, I, I think from the team standpoint, you know, just considering how late it is in the process you scouted all those guys for a year. You know, in a normal year you would have scouted the summer the college guys going back to summer ball and there wasn't a lot of summer ball the year before, but you know the high school guys were all on the showcase circuit um the year before. You know, PG National is essentially a combine. Uh, you know, that starts right after, you know, the draft for the next year's crop. So I don't know that you necessarily learned a lot new about any or many of the players or that's really going to affect their stock. I know from talking to the teams, they felt the most valuable part to them was the face-to-face interviews with players. They had like 20-minute interviews with a ton of players, a ton of teams. Every team had people there to interview people. Um, but just because you didn't get as much of that with the, um, you know, with COVID and some of the limitations, so I think that was even more valuable than the non-field stuff. And you, know, you mentioned Colson Montgomery in the intro. I mean. Colson Montgomery took batting practice and took infield. <laughs> like we've seen Colson Montgomery take batting practice and take infield before. And, you know, he hit the ball hard. Um, that was not a revelation. So I don't, I don't know that, that it really boosted the stock of, of many players, but it was, you know, it, it was a chance to lay, eye, lay eyes on guys one more time. And, and like I said, you know, sit down and, and talk to him a little bit when you maybe didn't have that opportunity.
1: All right. So talking about picks themselves, let's start at the very top with Pittsburgh and the number one overall pick. It's still a week away. Nothing is solidified, but do you have a good sense of which direction Pittsburgh wants to go with their number one pick?
2: I think I, I think all that's very accurate. Um, I think Pittsburgh is going to take a position player. I think I don't think there's any way, and there's some talented players in this draft. But you know, the, the, the first slot's eight point four million dollars. There isn't a Spencer Torkelson. There isn't a Natalie Rutschman. They're not going to give $8.4 million, the full pick value to whoever they take. So I think they're also exploring, you know, the guys are looking at what would it take to sign them and they, and factoring that into some degree as well. Like I I think the favorite to go number one overall is also the best player in the draft, Marcella Meyer, shortstop from California, high school kid who you know we think is the best hitter and the best defensive player in the draft, which is a pretty good combination, especially when you're a shortstop. Um, so I think he's the favorite. It feels like Henry Davis, the Louisville catcher, would kind of maybe be the number two guy. And I also think uh, high school shortstops Jordan Lawler and, and Khalil Watson are-, are factoring in there as well. And it's weird because, you know, like like Khalil Watson is probably the-, the-, the least hyped of those four guys. So you might say, well, they could take the biggest discount with him. Well, yes and no, because he could go sixth or seventh in the draft. But he also there's a strong chance he could go two. So, like, if he doesn't go two, I think he goes six or seven. But, like, I don't know how much you can you can discount him at one, if, if there's a strong chance he goes two. And, and Meyer could go two or three. You know, Davis could go four or five. You don't know if teams will pay a little extra if he falls to him. So it's – we're still kind of waiting for all that to play out.
1: Is Jack Leiter going to be the first pitcher drafted? Or could Jackson Job surprise folks and be drafted ahead of him?
2: Yes. I um, – I think the the answers are probably and yes. Um, I feel confident St. Jack Leiter will be the first college pitcher taken. He's going to go ahead of Kumar Rocker's teammate. I think Leiter is in the mix to go two. I think he's in the mix to go three. I don't think he's necessarily the – I mean, he might be. We're still trying to figure this out. He he may or may not be the top choice for the Rangers. Marcelo Meyer is the top choice for the Tigers, and I'm not sure who number two would be. It, it might be lighter. I, I think the Red Sox and Orioles at four and five would really like lighter. So I, I don't think he's going past four and absolutely not past five. But Jackson Job is interesting. You know, I, you know, I've said this a bunch. Everybody thinks I'm crazy. Well, not, not fans think I'm crazy. People in baseball would agree. If, if you're just grading out three best pitches, control command, Jackson Job is better than Jack Leiter or Kumar Rocker. He's got a better slider than Kumar. i said it. I think it's the best slider in the draft. He's got a really good fastball. It's not as good as Jack Leiter's fastball, which is the best in the draft, but it's 92 96 and it's got good life. He's got a better changeup than either one of those guys, and I think he, he's a better strike thrower than either one of those guys. And he might be. More athletic than either one of those guys, um now that said, he's a high school kid you know he's eighteen years old, the other two guys are twenty one they've proven they can stay healthy for three years longer than job has, which is big, and they've dominated the 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 highest level of college baseball the s e c they they tied for the national strikeout lead um so there's 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 value in that too but if you were just if you were just going solely based on what you see on the mound and not worrying about any of that other stuff which which again you need to worry about, jackson job's the best guy, and so I think the Tigers really, really like him, and he might be number two on their list behind Marcelo Meyer. I, I, I do feel like if he doesn't go three, though, he won't go ahead a lighter, and he could go seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, somewhere down there. Because, because teams are afraid of high school ratings, but he's he's really, really good. If, if this were last year, <laughs> it, uh, Josh, and the White Sox were picking 11th. I'd be sitting here telling you, like, hope Jackson Joke gets to him, but but he won't get to
1: 22. You mentioned Kumar Rocker. Does his draft stock take a hit after his College World Series Game 3 performance against Mississippi State? N-
2: not at all. I mean, the, the thing to remember, too, there is he was pitching on short rest for the second straight time. Like, he pitched, he pitched on the opening Saturday, and then he pitched on Friday, so that's one day's less rest than he usually would have. And then he pitched on Wednesday, which is two days less rest than he would normally have. And he, I didn't think he pitched. pitch up. I, I mean, his command was a little off. Bednar's, Will Bednar from Mississippi State, his command was off a little bit early, too. And, frankly, Rocker's defense didn't play very well behind him and didn't help. So I'm not making excuses for him. But the thing is, I mean, you've seen Kumar Rocker make – I think that was 18 starts. And, yeah, you know, his velocity fluctuated a little bit this year. And, you know, the the biggest question with him is, is he going to get swings and misses in the zone against quality big league hitters? Like, like, because he gets a lot of guys to chase the slider. And, 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 you know, we're nitpicking him, but that's what you're nitpicking him on. But, like, in terms of that one performance, I I don't think it mattered at all. But the only way his performance would have mattered at all would have been, like, if he'd gotten hurt. Or, or he was throwing eighty-eight, and everybody was like, "Whoa, like, what's going on here?" But, but no, it, it was fine. He, he just was tired. He, he was worn out. He, I, he might have led. I, I'd have to look, but I, I bet he led. He might have led you know, Division One in innings, and I'm, I, I'm ninety-nine percent sure he led Division One in starts. So, I think he just ran out of gas a little bit, pitching on short rest. And, and honestly, if uh, they had a little bit better defense behind him, you know, maybe that game turns out a little bit differently. So. Yeah. You know, so yeah. No. No. Nobody's holding that against him.
1: You mentioned Will Bednar from Mississippi State. How much did his draft stock increase with how he performed during the College World Series?
2: Again, I think only slightly. And Kumar Rocker did lead the nation in innings, at 122. Um, maybe slightly, but it's one to say. Like, if you didn't like, if if you weren't on Will Bednar as a first round pick before the College World Series, I don't think you're suddenly saying, oh, that guy's a first-round pick. Because, again, that guy's been scouted for a long time. I I think it helps him a little bit. I think he could go higher in the draft than people think, not so much because of the College World Series, but just because there's no consensus on the college pitchers, really, behind the two Vanderbilt guys. I I think Ty Madden, who was a high school teammate of of White Sox farmhand Matthew Thompson in high school, Um, I think Ty Madden from Texas is the number three college pitcher, but there's even talk that like, he might be slipping a little bit. I, I don't necessarily buy that. And I don't think there's a clear number four. So, like, Will Benner could be the number four college pitcher. He could – I think he could go as high as the Nationals at 11. But if he does that, I, I really think that's from the whole body of work. I don't think that's because he was a second-round pick and then the College World Series jumped him up a notch. And, you know, the, the, the funny thing is, you know, you know, if you if you look at performance, he was, like – Very (laughs) – I'll I'll just say he was bad against Notre Dame in the Super Regionals. He looked terrible. Um, Mm -hmm. And so, again, I don't think that was going to torpedo. But but, but, but after that outing, I was like, oh, like I thought he was building momentum to get into the first round because of the lack of college pitching before that. And after the Notre Dame game, I was thinking, wow, he kind of killed that and he kind of reversed course. I I think he goes – it'll be interesting. I I think he – I mean, I'm not saying the White Sox would take him. I think it's kind of 50-50 he's there for the White Sox pick. But I don't think he's necessarily in their mix. So,
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data Let's talk about the White
1: Sox pick at number 22. It's very difficult to try and pick one player because they draft so much later than previous seasons when we've had these conversations. Yes,
2: yes. Well, we, I think last year we kind of figured it out. Didn't we think it was going to be Garrett Crochet or Tyler Sodderschrom? We
1: we did. We did. Uh, so only pat on the back. That,
2: that kind of, <laughs> if only if only we had that kind of story. I'll tell you a funny story. I saw Mike Shirley at the Combine. And, yeah, you know, it's funny. I don't... I don't full court press guys on mocks. I will this week. So if anybody, if Mike's listening to this, I hope he's a loyal listener, Josh. Mike will be getting several texts from me this week, I'm sure, as will almost <laughs> every Sky director. But yeah. like basically, especially teams in the 20s, if I send you a text in in you know a month before the draft or six weeks before the draft and you don't respond, it's like hey, well, we don't know who's going 22 anyway. But I ran into Mike Shirley in the at the combine, and he said, hey, I'm sorry, I've been busy. I know I haven't gotten back to you. And I laughed and I said, that's fine, Mike. We're just going to give you the Indiana boy, uh, every mock draft until you start telling me otherwise. And, and I said, me and everybody else. And he laughed. And and, and it was funny because Colson was working out that day. He's like, I'm going to go, like, look really intent when he's taking BP so everybody can get photos of me looking intent at, at Colson Montgomery. But, uh, <laughs> we, we, we had a good laugh. But yeah, it's, uh, it's a little difficult, more difficult trying to figure out, especially in this draft, Josh. Because I think there's a, there's a tier, a top tier of eight guys, you know, four high school shortstops, two Vandy pitchers, Henry Davis, and, and Joe. And then I think there's a second tier of about six or seven guys. And then I think after those, those top 15 or so players, I don't think there's any consensus on what order to put guys in or how you stack up the college hitters or the college arms or whatever. And if you've got three or four different teams – and you said, okay, after your top 15, let's let's look at your next 15 guys. I think they they wouldn't they'd be all over the place. There'd be no consensus. So I think I think it's going to be. I, I just think you know I I bet not necessarily the White Sox pick, but in the second half of the first round, there are going to be two or three picks of, of guys who are ranked 40th or 38th on media lists. The fans are like, man, how they take a guy ranked that well? I, I just think teams are all over the place on these guys.
1: Well, Montgomery has been attached to the White Sox for a while. The Cubs are maybe interested in Montgomery at pick 21, as a week away from the draft. Do you think Montgomery will still be on the on the board for the White Sox at pick 22?
2: I'm going to say yes. It's not a lock, and, and you know the interesting team is the Mets because he keeps getting mentioned with the Mets. It's one of those things I, I've done this long enough. And this isn't the NFL where everybody lies to everybody because you can trade and you don't want anybody to know what you're doing. He gets mentioned with the Mets a lot, and that could either be the Mets are doing a discount with him at 10, which they've done with high school guys in the past, and then are going to go big in round two, you know, which they've done, you know, in the past, or it could be that they're going to play 10 straight up and then like try to get Montgomery to slide to their second round pick. By offering him a well over slot bonus, I, I don't. I, it's weird. I, I feel like the Mets are, are like maybe. I actually do. I say I feel like the Mets are the biggest threat ahead of like you know maybe the Cubs, but really I think it's the Mets. And you know they pick at ten, and the White Sox pick at twenty-two.
1: Okay, so if the Mets don't take Montgomery. There's a chance that Montgomery could reach to the White Sox at pick twenty-two.
2: Yes, but if that's the guy you want, or White Sox fans want. You may really have to sweat after the Yankees pick at twenty, and the Cubs are on the clock. Oh, yeah. That the Cubs may take it because we, we we do hear that as well. But but I will say for the Cubs, I mean that's just it's just they're one like you keep hearing Montgomery with the White Sox. Although I think some of that's easy because like Shirley and his Indiana ties are well known. Um, the Cubs, I just I have no front runner. I I, I hear like eight or ten different names, so it, it, it could be almost anybody there.
1: Let's say Montgomery doesn't make it to the White Sox. Uh, we did get this fan question from Ed Casey. Uh, he's asking, if Montgomery's off the board, who do you like out of this group of prep hitters? Peyton Stovall, Isaac Pacheco, West Kath, and Max Muncy.
2: Now, is this who I like or do I think the White Sox who, may like? Who
1: you like.
2: I love Peyton Stovall. Uh, that kid, I mean... It's funny, and it's like there's there's a few of these guys this year, like like at the college and pro level, where guys you're projecting them as second baseman, and that's usually not a hot position. But Peyton Stovall might be the best hitter in the draft. I, I know I said Marcelo Meyer, but you know, and, and I think that would be the consensus. But, but Peyton Stovall has a great swing, mm-hmm. hits the ball hard to all fields, good approach at the plate. He's got natural lift. You know, he, he hits for some power without, you know, trying to jack the ball out of the park. He can drive the ball the other way. Now, it's fringy run. It's fringy arm. There's no way this guy's a shortstop, I don't think. He's got a little bit of a thicker lower half, so he might slow a little bit. You're, you're hoping second base. Um, he, might, I mean, he might be a left fielder if he really slows down. I don't think he necessarily will. But I, I just I love this kid's bat. I think he'd be a very good pick at 22. Um You've gone to my head, I, I think I would take him over Colson Montgomery. That's just me. And and, and, and like, it's weird the things that, like, stick in your mind. But I, I think I told you a couple of years ago when we were discussing Jared Kelnick, I was asking somebody about Jared Kelnick in the fall. And I had an area scout go, he's a more athletic version of Mark Hotze, and, and which is probably underselling him now. And I was just like, oh, my God. Like, I love, Mark Kotze was my favorite college player. Like, when I was on the college beat for BA, unbelievable player. And I was just like, oh, like, I'm, I'm all in on Jared Kelnick. So I was talking to an area scout who's been doing this forever about Stovall, and he said he's got the best swing in my area since Todd Walker. And I was like, oh, man, like Todd Walker was – he might have been the best hitter I saw when I was on the college beat. You know, his eighth overall pick in the draft.
0: You know, he's second
2: base only. You know, played 12 years in the big leagues. And when, when – when, I mean, to have a guy compare his swing to – Todd Walker is like one of the great – you know amateur swings I've ever seen it was, it was like that Kel Kotse moment I was like okay I I I'm in on Peyton Stovall so anyway probably a longer answer than you expected there because of my enthusiasm for Peyton Stovall I would absolutely love Peyton Stovall um that said the name I've heard the most of those guys is West Cass uh, of those uh of those high school guys. And, and Ed, I will say, I know Ed follows me on Twitter and he'll ask me questions too. Ed is very plugged in. I like I kudos to Ed as a white Sox fan for, for good questions and good knowledge.
1: Yeah. With Westcath, I, the, the one thing I keep hearing about him uh, asking folks in Arizona is uh power like this. He's got, he's got great power potential. So that's kind of the combination between West Westcath and Stovall where, Stovall is going to be more gap to gap. People think, but but Kath may have more home run power than Stovall. He might, but,
2: but don't don't sell. I'm telling you, Stovall is such a good hitter. Uh, I you you. I'll give you West Kath has more power upside. I I may fight you a little bit if we're going to talk about who's going to hit more home runs in the big leagues. I, I think it's going to be pretty close. I. I you you will not you you will not talk me out of Peyton Stovall. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to. I I know you're not. I'm well, just saying the, the the barrel speed for Peyton Stovall. Like just watching, you can go on YouTube, folks, and just you know Google Peyton Stovall and just watch his at bats at these showcases and games. the The bat speed is is terrific, and yeah, you can see where even though he's a teenager right now, he could be a major league hitter. Uh, I don't think the White Sox can go wrong if Montgomery, Stovall, and Kath are still on the board with pick 22. I think you can make a case for any of those three. But if it's not a prep player, are you hearing any college pitchers possibly tying to the White Sox with pick 22, Jim?
2: You know, I've heard heard a little bit of rumbling that the upper-level guys may want a college player. Um,
1: They always do. (sighs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> I know, and, and uh, there's also some thought that they might go high school early, and, and then hammer college pitching like later in the draft. Um, you know, it's you know if you're looking for college bats, like let's say they're they're, they're going to focus on a bat because I've heard some of that. Like it's just like which bat do you like? There, do you, do you like Judd Fabian? No. Do you like? <laughs> that, that was quick um there, there just aren't a lot of college bats like like the, there, there's four that that i think are consensus first rounders you know davis matt mcclain at ucla and two outfielders colton Kowser, and south frelic and then it's like judd fabian ethan wilson matthew nelson adrian del castillo uh, you know maybe you like, I don't know if they're on Tyler Black or Connor Norby, who's second baseman, who get mentioned in the first round. And, you know, if it's pitching, you know, maybe it's more realistic to think if they go to college, they go college pitchers. There's a chance. I think, one, of the college pitchers is going to fall a little bit. I don't know if they'll get to 22, but, like, a, I don't think Ty Man won't get to 22, but but maybe a Sam Bachman or Jordan Wicks or Will Bednar gets there, Um I don't know if they would be interested in Gunnar Hoagland coming off of Tommy John, you know, Ryan Cusick, of Wake Forest, McGreevy, of Santa Barbara, Gavin Williams is a guy who pitched well in the postseason. Uh at East Carolina, like those guys are all interesting. I don't know if anybody really believes that any of those guys are the twenty second best player in the draft. Well, maybe somebody probably does. But um I think the value honestly I think you I mean you know me I think you take the best available player and I just think the way this, this draft is shaping up that, that best available player is going to be a high school guy it's either going to be one of those position players and I'll also throw in Joe Mack a catcher from New York mm-hmm. um, Harry Ford a catcher from Georgia and Will Taylor an outfielder from South Carolina or it could be I, I don't know if they go high school pitcher in the first round because they, they typically don't but it might be somebody like Anthony Solomito or Andrew Painter or Bubba Chandler
0: you know Frank
2: Mazzucato one of those guys, like, I I do think you're going to, at least me, and I don't have upper management telling me who to pick, that at 22 I'll bet the best players on the board are going to be mostly high school guys.
1: I agree with that. I definitely do agree with that. I am I am rooting for a prep position player for pick 22, but as Jim mentioned, there's so many names that could be available at the White Sox at pick 22 that uh, I don't think they can go wrong uh, unless they take Judd Fabian. That's the only you're, one. you're
2: anti-Fabian.
1: That, he, yeah, you, you know mean, what he you reminds weren't me sold, of?
2: You weren't sold by his good BP at the combine?
1: Come oh, on. Jim, Jim. Yeah,
2: uh, so who did he remind you of?
1: Jared Kellen, uh, Kendall. From yeah, Vanderbilt.
2: Yeah. Well, different. Kendall is more athletic, but you no, know, I know it's funny because I really liked, I really liked Aaron Kendall, and I was like, ah, you know, he has his strikeout rate's twenty eight percent, but you know, maybe he's a Mike Cameron type player. He can do all these things, and you know, the Dodgers, I think, you know, I think their development does such a great job with so many players getting them to maximize their. Their skills, and then they can't get Jared Kendall to hit, and and Judd Fabian's strikeout record Eight is worse. So, right. yeah, it, it, it would concern. I it probably, I think he's going to go in the first round. Like, I, I would have no problem if Judd Fabian. I, I think ideally you would like him to be your second pick, um, but there's a lot of risk if you put him on your first pick. I, I for some reason, I thought you were going to go with Jared Mitchell uh, for second, <laughs> no, but uh...
1: no, no. <laughs> no, no, if you're going to if you're striking out 35 plus percent of the time in college, I'm just going to say you're going to strike out 35% plus the time in the minors. And if you reach the majors, yeah, you're going to strike out a ton and he's got great power. There's great tools. It just, I, I'm, I'm pretty wary right now of Judd Fabian.
2: Well, you about him too was he got out he was striking out of like a 40% clip for the first half of the season he was, and then he yeah. made this two-strike adjustment and like when I first started I was like okay we're oversimplifying but no he he like basically like reduced his stride tremendously shortened his swing and he was great and then the last three weeks of the season went back to strike it out a lot again so I, I don't I, I do not know what to make of him
1: uh the last fan question and because it's such a popular topic in the major leagues this comes from one of our Patreon supporters Heine Bird and they're asking, are there questions right now around the Major League Baseball draft regarding sticky stuff and spin rate surrounding the top pitching prospects?
2: Um, I have not heard that brought up. Yeah, um, no, it's interesting. Um, I haven't heard that brought up. But, like, who's – I mean, you would think, I mean, as much as that was going on at the big league level, people knew it was going on. That, that maybe there is some of that going on at the amateur level, but I, but I have not heard it brought up as a concern, and I don't know, I I don't know. I mean, outside of asking a kid, hey, are you using SpiderTech? Um, I <laughs> uh, I don't know how you would really know. Um, so so no, I don't I don't I don't, I mean maybe it is, but nobody's really talking about it. And, and like I like I said, I don't know. Like you know, Jackson Job has this great spin rate on his slider. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if you're sitting there you know, like going frame by frame to see if he's reaching into his glove or something. But, um, I mean, I, I'll put it this way. I have not heard anybody say – I have not heard anybody bring that up as a concern with an individual player. Hey, you know, he's got this great breaking ball or a great four-seam spin rate, but, like, he's, you know, not going to be able to use that stuff at the next level. So, good, good question. I, I wish I had a better answer for it.
1: Well, you can watch Jim on MLB Network as he's going to be part of the draft coverage. The first round is on Sunday, July 11th with the first round broadcast starting around 5 p.m. Central Time. He'll have updates to his mock draft during the week. So make sure you're visiting MLB.com Pipeline Daily to read his and Jonathan Mayo's work as they are the best covering the draft. And of course, follow Jim on Twitter at Jim Jim, I'm excited to see what happens in this year's draft, and as always, it's a pleasure having you on the Sox Machine podcast.
2: No, I always enjoy, Josh, and, and I just remembered—I forgot to ask you—who do you want at 22? Who is your best realistic oh, scenario man. at 22? I know you break this down all year.
1: Yeah, I—I I, I, for me, it's a coin flip between Stovall and Montgomery. Watching Montgomery State final. You know, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's always the trouble watching prep players because they don't get pitched to sometimes. And right. he got intentionally walked in his last two plate appearances. But there's been so much talk about, well, I don't think he's going to stick at short. He's got to move over to third. I think he's got the tools to stick at short. I like his you, arm. You,
2: you and Harold Reynolds. Harold Reynolds uh, was saying the same thing.
1: Yeah, I I like his arm, his body control. That's something I've been paying attention to more as I'm getting into this is on how high school shortstops and even college shortstops maintain body control. Excuse me. Growing up with Tim Anderson, you know, Tim Anderson had terrible body control charging in on slow rollers, and that was kind of the crux of his problems and why he had so many throwing errors, uh, especially early in his career. Uh, I think Montgomery's got really good body control, and I'm not comparing him to Corey Seager on offense because I think that's where Corey Seager has the most value. But if Corey Seager and Carlos Correa, these taller shortstops, can stick at the position in the major leagues, I think Montgomery could also stick at the position. So I'm not, I'm not one of those that wants to move him to third base right away, but. You put on film with Stovall, and I dream big with Stovall as well, Jim. So I, I think it's a coin flip between those two right now for me.
2: I think those would both be good picks. I mean, I'm a little less sold. I, I, I agree with you on Montgomery. He's athletic, very good basketball player. You know, I think once he puts on, like, he grows 30 pounds and he's six four, two twenty. you know, he's already a below average, or a fringy runner. If he's below average, maybe that moves him off, but, um, no, I, I do like him. I, I do like him, and, and I feel like at least one of those two guys should be available, um, so, so we'll see.
1: Yeah, we definitely will see, but as always, Jim, thank you so much for hopping on.
2: Oh, yeah, no, I enjoyed it. Thanks.
0: You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Sox. Thanks,
1: Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks, where you submitted your questions to us via Twitter by tweeting at us at Machine, or by becoming a Patreon supporter, in which our mailbag this week for P.O. Socks comes from our Patreon supporters because you guys had a lot of questions for us this week. So let's go ahead and let's start answering these questions. And the, the first couple of questions here... Uh, we're very popular. So there was a tweet from Calvin Wisson uh, that sent us asking our thoughts about Tony LaRussa. And we also got this question from AJ Mithin. Early, we were all piling onto him, but how do you rate Tony LaRussa's performance as manager with a half season in the bag? So Calvin and AJ, my perspective on Tony LaRussa. April, bad. May bad. June good and so far in July he's starting off well the reason April and May were bad is that there were very questionable in-game decision making that La Russa was doing that ultimately did cost the White Sox a few games and that's why right now if you look at the expected win-loss record the White Sox are still two games below their actual win total to what their expected win total is they're not playing up to what should be their expected record. They are slightly underachieving as a team, uh, which is really weird to say. I, I get it because of all the injuries the White Sox have gone through on the position player front to say they should be better than what they are. But technically, yes, they should be better than what their actual record is. And, and again, we, we've hashed that out numerous times as far as the, the odd bullpen decision making uh, the odd way that he handles Liam Hendricks. There are decisions that Larusa has made that's cost the White Sox games. We have seen that in April. We have seen that in May. We really didn't see that in June, and we're not a week into July yet, uh, and we still haven't seen that. There was also the whole Yuram Mercedes uh, episode uh, that happened in May. There was the Liam Hendricks is running the bases episode that happened in May. So I would say that LaRusse is doing a much better job since June first, since he's gotten used to the team. He has a better grasp on the talent that he has on hand. And I do think that LaRussa is doing a good job pre-game as far as handling all of the new faces that are being called up, trying to put these players into a position that they can succeed. I think Tony LaRusse is doing a very good job of that. I still am a bit concerned especially when we get to the final stretch of the regular season and rolling into the postseason how La Russa handles that transition from the starting pitchers to the bullpen. We saw this on Saturday. I get it. Dallas Keuchel was only at 70 pitches and you're at the halfway point of the season. The expectation is is that the starting pitchers carry the workload, most of the workload. However, if the attention of playing every single game is to win every single game, then when Dallas Keuchel gives up back-to-back hits uh, in the fifth inning, when he's got runners on first and second, and you got a two-run lead, it was pretty apparent that Keuchel didn't have it, and that it was command of his pitches, and those pitches were not very effective. I would have... Like to see Larusa replace Keuchel. I know in the post game press conference, Keuchel would have been upset. He was upset about his last start against Seattle. He didn't like getting taken out in the seventh inning with left-handers coming up to bat. He thought that he had deserved that opportunity, being a veteran and performing in the past, to try to pitch a complete game or at least get the game into extra innings instead of going to Liam Hendricks. And uh, yeah, based on his past press conferences, I'm sure Kaiko would have been upset getting yanked at the 70th pitch mark. But he was not good on Saturday. And the meltdown was completed. And the White Sox ended up losing that game 11 to 5. There might have been a better way of handling that situation. Larusa may have had a reliever warmed up or getting warmed up in the fifth inning. So after the first two batters reach on base. He then makes a switch maybe to Ryan Burr and Burr in another timeline gets out of that jam and the White Sox still lead five to three. Yeah, the bullpen's got to carry most of the workload the rest of the way. We would have to, you know, we wouldn't know on how that game would have resulted, but at least the White Sox would have had the lead uh, in this hypothetical timeline situation Uh, because Ryan Burr pitched really well, even though he got screwed over a couple times by the home plate umpire. On some missed strike three calls that uh, that hurt the White Sox. That 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 right there. That is up to the manager. That is the part of the game the manager has control of. And I'm still not confident that LaRussa is going to make the right call. And we're not going to gain any confidence in Larusa until we actually see him manage this situation better. And my hope is is that he will manage the situation better as we get closer to September and we get into the postseason. Because if Keuchel is not effective as the third time the order is coming through, you gotta replace him. The White Sox have two pitchers right now that are just having difficulty as far as uh, getting, you know, times to the order penalty. Keuchel has a problem uh, when it's the third time through the order. Dylan Cease has a problem facing a lineup a second time. Your postseason rotation, honestly, would be Giolito, Lynn, and Rodon. Because they don't have those dramatic splits times to the order penalty like Keichel and Cease do. So if the division's on the line in late September, uh, you if they're not looking good, I, I am hoping that Larusa changes his methods and he's more aggressive, pulling Cease and Keuchel, Uh when you get into the fourth inning or the fifth inning and they just don't look right because uh, you don't want to lose those games and you'll have to rely rely on the bullpen a bit more. But, you know, AJ and Calvin, that's what I'm focusing on because that is what Tony DeRosa can control. He doesn't swing the bat. The starting pitching is really easy right now because everyone is mostly performing. But I do give a, a, a cap tip to Ethan Katz. If there was a pitching coach of the year or a hitting coach of the year awards, I have to imagine Ethan Katz is the pitcher of coach uh, of the year for Major League Baseball for the way that he's helped not just Dylan Cease but also turned around Carlos Rodon's career so Ethan Katz should get a lot of credit for what we have seen this year from the Chicago White Sox especially the starting pitching staff for Larusa, I think he's doing a good job pregame. I think he's doing a good job getting these young guys into the lineup and working out as far as their playing time and giving them confidence that they could stick at this level in in, in the face of all of these injuries the White Sox have faced, I'm, I'm still a bit shaky on the way that he handles the transition from the starting pitchers to the bullpen. But Calvin and AJ, thank you so much for your question. Uh, again, our next topic here, because uh, we got a couple questions about this. Uh, one part of this comes from Scott, and Scott wrote to us, I would like to see... If the White Sox can avoid or limit depleting the farm system for a trade deadline acquisition, especially considering the anticipation of Aloy Jimenez and Luis Robert coming back later this season. Also, I've been impressed with the hitting of Gavin Sheets, and it's time to give him a legitimate opportunity in right field. I'm torn about second base when you consider a healthy lineup with Robert and Jimenez as the DH. Is Lurie Garcia such a bad option hitting ninth in that lineup? Secondly, I'd argue that holding off on a trade, minus a trade for a bullpen arm, makes the most sense with consideration of not only today, but tomorrow. As Josh pointed out on Twitter, the financial cost for Sheets in right field is great, and that the cost savings could be used towards starting pitching next offseason. I'm of the opinion that they should keep the current rotation intact, Michael Kopech continue in his current role as a fill-in starter because any member of this rotation could go down with an injury. So the second question then is, why not consider both the now and the future when it comes to the trade deadline? Piggybacking on Scott, we got this question from Andrew Segal. Is Gavin Sheets a solution to right field or or is he a bridge until the trade market shakes out for right field options? Okay, so Gavin Sheets. I'm buying stock at Gavit Sheets. I really like his swing. Buying stock at Gavin Sheets right field, as a right fielder, I am not buying that. He is not a right fielder, folks. Okay? He is not. And it's one thing for Andrew Vaughn trying to fake it and play left field and demonstrating he's a better left fielder than Aloy Jimenez, but that bar is incredibly low to pass for Andrew Vaughn. And... Luis Robert is a world-class center fielder, but I don't think you can put two way below average defenders in left field and right field and get away with that for an entire season. Gavin Sheets really is a first baseman DH type, and I give him a lot of credit on him working at defense in right field but he still needs a lot more work before we could say oh yeah he's an average right fielder or before I feel confident that hey he should be in right field every single day I think he could be platoon there but yeah I would like you know Gavin Sheets to be part of the lineup for the upcoming week so we can learn a little bit more about him if he has staying power I am excited about Gavin Sheets especially Gavin Sheets the hitter but we have just seen Yerman Mercedes get optioned to Charlotte. And there is a lesson to be learned there for fans, media, bloggers, podcasters, analysts, anyone involved in the game. Anyone could have a great month. That doesn't mean that they have staying power. Yerman Mercedes had one of the best months I've ever seen from a White Sox hitter. May, he regressed and we got concerned. June, he fell off a cliff. And now he's back in Charlotte. That could easily happen to Gavin Sheets, Jake Berger, anybody uh, that the White Sox are calling up right now. Because this is a tough test. Gavin Sheets is off to a great start. And if he continues to hit like this, yes, I would like the White Sox to entertain the idea that if you are going to keep Adam Engel... Maybe that is your platoon in right field because that is a much cheaper option than giving Adam Eaton $7.5 million and buying him out $500,000 after the season. And for those that have been asking, why do people hate Adam Eaton so much? It's more of we hated the idea of Adam Eaton from the beginning. I wrote a post in December about left-handed right field options for the White Sox. I did not include Adam Eaton because that was a bad idea. And it was a bad idea, and it's turned out to be a bad idea because it's not worth the money for a team that is so budget-conscious, that is constricted in their offseason moves based on that budget. Giving Adam Eaton $7.5 million was not smart, and I do believe that it is hurting the White Sox today, and in the future, looking at 2022, if Rick Hahn believes in Gavin Sheets— like most White Sox fans do after, what, five or six games, then if he's already making plans for next season of having an Adam Engel and Gavin Sheets platoon in right field, okay, that is a much cheaper option. And as as Scott wrote, you could use more funds, more of your budget to try to bring back Lance Lynn or Carlos Rodon or try to bring both back. Because, again, I am sure the White Sox will have some type of budget we are unaware of. And it's going to impact what Rick Hahn can do in next offseason in 2022. But as far as this trade deadline, I do believe, Scott, that Rick Hahn needs to have a focus on how can I make the best roster possible for this season. I would not necessarily consider 2022 at this moment. And I know that we get very huggy when it comes to White Sox prospects. Gavin Sheets and Jake Berger have tremendous value to teams that are looking for position players to play in their major league squad next year. Jake Berger and Gavin Sheets could be Dane Dunnings. A Dane Dunning got the White Sox, Lance Lynn. The White Sox get Lance Lynn, a top five pitcher in the American League for a season. And the Texas Rangers get Dane Dunning, somebody that could be their number four, number five starting pitcher for the next six seasons. Jake Berger and Gavin Sheets could be another team's first base DH, possibly third base A Jake Berger situation for a team next season for the next five to six seasons, depending on how the CBA works out uh, in December. And the White Sox in exchange get a position player or starting pitcher for that entire season, but it would be a top caliber type of position player or starting pitcher Again, a very similar deal the White Sox pulled off this past offseason with the Texas Rangers for Lance Lynn. I, I could buy as far as that angle of that's the only way you trade Jake Berger or Gavin Sheets. I get that. And maybe there is an opportunity for that. Possibly with Pittsburgh and Adam Frazier. I wouldn't put it past the White Sox moving either. Uh, to Pittsburgh to have Adam Frazier because you get Frazier for this season and for next season, we'll we'll see. But as far as going up to this trade deadline and saying, we're not going to make a move for another position player. We're not going to add another bat because we're also thinking about 2022 here. I would not do that. There's so much uncertainty for next season. We don't know if a new CBA is going to get done before December 1st. And if it's not done by December 1st, is opening day on April? I mean, there seems to be a contingency plan for everyone involved in baseball that if the CBA does expire and doesn't get done by, let's say, February 1st. Opening day's in May. So you're going to miss an entire month of April. I mean, it's going to be very difficult for GMs to plan for 2022. And they're they're the guy in the middle. They're stuck in the middle here between an ownership group battling the Players Association. They have no say on what's going on in the CBA. They can just only play by the rules that are within the CBA for roster construction. So I would not worry about 2022 that much. I would be more focused on how can the 2021 White Sox be built in a way that not only can they win the American League Central, but they could win the American League pennant. And I think that is going to be key because you don't want any regrets where you get in late September or in October in the postseason like we did last year in that series against Oakland where we all were like, oh, man, you know, what if the White Sox had Lance Lynn for game three? Maybe they win that series and then they got a good shot against Houston. And do they go to the American League Championship Series and face the Tampa Bay Rays? What if you don't want that? especially for this season in 2021. No regrets. Go get the guys you think you could get before the trade deadline and try to build the best possible team in 2021. 2022 will sort itself out. Scott and Andrew, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Steve Bennett. We are just one game into the Jake Berger era, but if he hits enough to stay on his DH and spell Makata adequately at third base... Is there any chance he could convince the White Sox to trade Yohan Makata this winter? Makata is due to make $13.8 million next year and could bring back a pretty good haul. Steve, the short answer is no. Yohan Makata is not going anywhere. And no matter how well Jake Berger plays, Jake Berger I do not think is going to convince the White Sox that, you know what, we should trade Yohan Makata. I do not see that happening. I do see a lot of this narrative on White Sox fans wanting to get rid of Makata or Makata is soft. Uh, I, I don't get it. Uh, Yohan Makata is one of the White Sox best players on this team and will be one of the best players next year. I don't think we have these narratives. If Yohan Makata has 15 home runs this year instead of the low home run total he has currently, I don't think we would have this narrative. But because he's not hitting home runs, there are some White Sox fans that are, there's not really a better way of saying this, but getting sick of him. And I don't get it. I really don't. He's one of the best position players the White Sox have. Yohan is not going anywhere. Let's not entertain this idea. If, there's a, if we have this conversation a hundred more times, 99 times. I believe Jake Berger would be the one getting traded and not Yoan makata But Steve, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Mark Sambor and Mark is asking, would the cost of Eduardo Escobar be greater than what the White Sox gave up for James Shields or Francisco Liriano? The most recent mid season trades where the White Sox were adding to the team. Oh man, the Francisco Liriano trade. Well, that involved Eduardo Escobar. Um, So let's use the James Shields trade. So at the time in 2016, and that's key here, the White Sox gave San Diego the International League Pitcher of the Year, Eric Johnson, a quadruple-A pitcher that seemed to be ready to pitch in the major leagues, but just didn't have that opportunity with the White Sox. The White Sox didn't trust Eric Johnson after their 23-10 and start and, and trying to prevent themselves from drowning. Uh, to help turn around their fates and make the postseason. Uh, but Eric Johnson could start for the San Diego Padres, so that was the headliner at the time for the James Shields trade, was Eric Johnson. The throw-in, the lottery ticket, was Fernando Tatis Jr. Now, looking back at 2021, the headliner is Fernando Tatis Jr. The afterthought is Eric Johnson, because Johnson got hurt shortly after he arrived in San Diego and I don't recall him making many starts to the major leagues after that. Uh, but obviously the Padres benefited greatly from that trade, whereas the White Sox uh, did not. I could see a similar setup for Eduardo Escobar in which what I've been told what Arizona is seeking is a pitcher and a position player. The type of pitcher that they want is someone that has good control. Think of a low walk-per-nine rate. On the position player front, they want somebody who is a good defender because they believe they could teach someone to hit better. So when I'm looking through the White Sox farm system, I don't think it's going to include Zach Collins or Jake Berger. Like That has been tossed out by John Heyman uh, for audacity sports uh he tweeted that out i don't think it's gonna include those two what i could see is like a Connor pilkinton because he has good control and he's in double a and lennon sosa sosa's 21 years old he's at the shortstop position he continues to rake i think he's got 10 home runs now but he was better known as a uh, defensive shortstop, someone very good defensively at the position. That's the type of deal that I could see completing a Eduardo Escobar trade as Pilkington and Sosa. Now, you may ask, well, if that's what it would take, why not? Why isn't Eduardo Escobar in a White Sox uniform right now? And it could be that Arizona's holding out for more, but there comes to this point especially since they know and Escobar knows that on August 1st, he's not going to be with the Arizona Diamondbacks, that there comes to this intersection point in the upcoming weeks before the trade deadline where the Diamondbacks can wait out and try to receive the best package as possible. But if they wait too long, then they're going to be in a rush to take whatever's on the table. And I think for the White Sox, that would be the best offer that I would make to Arizona. Is Pilkington and Sosa? And if Arizona says no to that, well then, yeah, I would I would shift gears and continue to talk to Pittsburgh about Adam Frazier and see if that cost drops or if there's a set of prospects that convinces Ben Charrington of Pittsburgh to finally move Adam Frazier. There's also Jonathan Scope with Detroit. The White Sox can make an interdivision trade. Yeah, I, there's there's options out there. Some are sexy, some are not. But as far as the cost for Eduardo Escobar, I don't think it would be greater than the cost that the White Sox sent James Shields. But that cost was only grown because of the type of player Fernando Tatis Jr. turned out to be. Maybe Lennon Sosa is the next superstar. But at the time of that trade the White Sox made, it it wasn't much. It was a 16-year-old international prospect lottery ticket and a quadruple-A starting pitcher. And that's kind of how I feel for Arizona, is here is a good control starting pitcher in double-A, and here is a good double-A defensive shortstop. In exchange for half a season of Eduardo Escobar, I think that's a fair deal for both sides. We'll see what ends up happening, Mark. But thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Michael Kenny Jr. And Michael is asking, with the trade deadline providing a chance to think ahead to 2022, should the White Sox consider Andrew Vaughn an outfielder moving forward? If Aloy Jimenez is ticketed for DH, it seems like the only options for Vaughn are to keep him in left or trade him. All right. So after I just said, (laughs) the White Sox, when it comes to the trade deadline, should only think about 2021. And next year could sort itself out next year, especially during the offseason. When it comes to Andrew Vaughn, I think he just, yeah, he's going to have this position flexibility. He's going to get starts in left field. He's going to get starts at DH. He's going to get starts at first base. Jose Abreu is in the last year of his contract next year. So in 2023 is intriguing to me on where Andrew Vaughn plays because if you do believe he is the successor of Jose Abreu at first base, well then Vaughn moves to first base, and then who plays left field? Do you feel confident in Aloy Hemnes going to left field? Maybe Gavin Sheets has improved enough that he can't be a right fielder, but he won't drown in left field. And then Sheets moves to left field, or Oscar Colas is into the fold, or Yolki Cespedes it turns out to be someone that could be playing in the major leagues or the White Sox go out in free agency against someone. The future's really hazy with this team. That's why I think the mindset just needs to be on the present. But for Andrew Vaughn, with how well he's played in left field, even though he may not grade out as an average fielder in left field, I think he's done enough to prove that he's a better defensive option than Aloy Jimenez. So yeah, in two thousand twenty two, um now talking about this of July in 2021, I do expect that Vaughn would get more starts in left field than Aloy Jimenez, but he's gonna still have that flexibility where he's gonna get starts in left field, first base, a DH, and boy, for fantasy baseball, uh, for fantasy baseball players, that's a uh, that's a good thing because then Vaughn is a uh, really intriguing because he's got that flexibility that you could put in your roster. And maybe he's someone you consider drafting higher next year in your fantasy baseball league. But Michael, thank you so much for your question regarding Andrew Vaughn. Uh, Our next question comes from Muhammad and Muhammad is asking the best case scenario for the major league baseball draft and any chance we could have a top half system with a couple of hits and the addition of Oscar Colossus. Well, Muhammad, I think the best case scenario answering that question first is that with the 22nd pick, the white Sox do uh, draft Colson Montgomery, the prep shortstop from Southridge, Indiana. Uh, as I wrote on Sox Machine Sunday morning, the four prep the four prep players that I constantly hear are attached to the White Sox are Colson Montgomery, westcath He's a shortstop, but they think he's going to be more of a third base from Desert Mountain uh, in Arizona. Uh, You have Payne Stovall. He's a second baseman out of Louisiana. And you have Max Muncy. No, not that Max Muncy with the Los Angeles Dodgers. Max Muncy from Thousand Oaks, California. Uh, Also a shortstop. Those are the four players that I routinely keep being told are attached to the White Sox. I'm not hearing any college bats attached to the White Sox. The only college pitcher that I have heard attached to the White Sox at pick 22 is Gavin Williams from East Carolina. And I wrote about him for the Patreon supporters uh, a few weeks ago on how he made himself a lot of money in that super regional start against Vanderbilt. And I think Williams has similar Michael Kopech arsenal, Uh, a fantastic fastball, a developing changeup and a strikeout slider. Uh, I I squint when watching Williams and I, I do see a little bit of Michael Kopeck in him. Uh, but I again, the best case scenario I think for the White sox is they draft Montgomery at 22 and they work out a deal with Max Munsey at pick number 57, say two and a half million dollars, which is way above slot for the White Sox uh, for that second round pick yeah because the the second round pick for the White sox is, $1.2 million. So it'd be well over double their bonus slot value for pick 57, where they would have to borrow money from rounds four through 10. That I think would be the best case scenario because now the White Sox are adding two prep shortstops into their farm system. And, you know, there are some that believe that Montgomery as he continues to add weight to his frame uh, that he will move off the shortstop position. I don't necessarily think that will happen i think that montgomery could stick at shortstop and with max Muncy, i think he has average tools at the shortstop position i think he's in he's got average range he's got a good glove uh his arm velocity as far as during infield drills is at 87 miles per hour uh, that's 50 to 55 grade for shortstops especially prep shortstops which is good and Muncie is someone that if you have Montgomery, let's say is the starting shortstop for the 2022 uh, Kannapolis Cannonballers, maybe Max Muncie is the starting second baseman or starting third baseman for the Cannonballers next to Montgomery. I just think that the White Sox, if they're going to start playing this positionless baseball where you may not have a lot of experience at this position, but we're going to play you at this position to get you more experience and develop those skills at those positions, the White Sox need to draft up the middle. They need more shortstops. They need more center fielders where you can move them to the corners or you could take the shortstop and move them to third because they got good arm strength. Or if you don't like their arm strength, you could move them over to second base or maybe to left field. Or if they do have excellent, uh, they have an excellent arm, but they don't have the best foot speed or the best range or the best uh, 10-foot interval, uh, then you can move them to right field. I- again, if you're to, if the White Sox are going to go down this direction and just take players that are first-base DH types and put them into the corner outfield spots uh, or try to see if they're a second baseman, if that's the route you want to go, then draft in the middle of the diamond. Take the shortstops. Take the center fielders. Take the prep shortstops that have good bat-to-ball skills and you can continue to develop that aspect because I think you'll get a higher floor of an outcome, especially on defense, that they'll be able to stick at those defensive positions better than a bat-only first baseman DH type that is trying to not drown when they get put out into the outfield or try to not embarrass themselves when they're when they're attempting to play second base, which is what the White Sox are currently doing uh with Andrew Vaughn, Gavin Sheets, and Jake Berger. So I think that's the best possible outcome. The picks will not be sexy from rounds four through ten for the White Sox. It'd be a lot of college seniors, but I am definitely in favor of the White Sox once again spending most of their draft bonus pool in the first three rounds to try to maximize the most talent they get out of those picks and add into their farm system. Because the one aspect that not a lot of people are talking about for this upcoming Major League Baseball draft, teams don't have enough roster spots for their A-level club next year for this 20-round draft. And we may look back at this and say 20 rounds was too many rounds. With the loss of Great Falls and that those rookie leagues, uh, this is where it's going to bite teams in the butt. I think 20 rounds is too many. I think the, the draft should be 10 rounds if you're not going to have those additional instructional development or rookie ball leagues. If you're just going to have Arizona... And then A, high A, double A, AA, and triple A. I don't think the draft needs to be twenty rounds. I I don't. I think it should be fifteen round, ra- ten to fifteen rounds. I think is is fine. And then if you need guys to fill in, sign them as undrafted free agents. You could get them for ten to twenty thousand dollar bonuses for the most part uh, to fill out the rest of your roster. So Muhammad, I hope that answers your question. And again, the Major League Baseball draft is going to be next Sunday. For those that have Twitter, we're going to be having a Twitter space. And you may ask, what in the world is a Twitter space? A Twitter space is an audio room in which I will launch and I will be having James Fox of Future Sox join me as we'll talk through and share our thoughts during the Major League Baseball draft. So if you got Twitter and you follow me on Twitter at SocksMachine underscore Josh. When I launch the Twitter space room, you'll see my avatar, my profile pick with purple swirling around it. Just tap on that and you can listen to James and I talk live during the MLB draft up to the White Sox first round pick, giving our thoughts and our analysis along the way, and the Major League Baseball draft on Sunday. Uh, The draft show is going to start at 5 o'clock p.m. Central Time. I think the Major League Baseball draft actually starts at 6 o'clock p.m. Central Time. So you can check that out on Twitter as James Fox and I will give our live thoughts, and then we'll record a special podcast uh, reviewing the White Sox first and second round picks. Of the 2021 Major League Baseball Draft, and of course, we will continue to cover the Major League Baseball Draft on SoxMachine.com. We'll have the updated mock draft uh, roundup because everyone's going to be posting up new mock drafts. I'm going to make my best guesses on the mock draft next weekend. We're going to have the mock draft contest again on SoxMachine.com. So if you love the Major League Baseball Draft or you're just getting into it, there's a lot more coming this week on that topic. But Muhammad, thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions to us this week for P.O. Socks. If you have a question or topic that you would like to ask us in a future episode of the Socks Machine podcast, one, follow us on Twitter. We're at Socks Machine. Two, sign up to be a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash Socks Machine, where our friends at Patreon get exclusive content. They get ad-free versions of the podcast and the website, and they get first crack at our new swag items and there are new swag items coming to the socks machine store we are very excited about it and we have monthly plans starting at two three five and ten dollars a month so again if you want, if you like our work and you want more from us go to patreon.com socksmachine and sign up today That will do it for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. Thank you so much to Jim Callis, our guest, for joining us from MLB.com to talk about Gavin Sheets, Jake Berger, and the upcoming Major League Baseball draft. And if you just discovered the Sox Machine Podcast, you can subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And the Sox Machine Podcast, part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, is a production of SoxMachine.com, your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. I'm Josh Nelson.